for, for those of you who haven't been here through most of the summer, we are in a series called Lifelines, and early before the summer started, we took a poll of the congregation about favorite lines of Scripture that were kind of lifelines uh, for them, and so we've been preaching out of the top choices through the summer, and, and today we're in Romans chapter 12, and, and these are lines of transformation. Life is full of transformation. In the early stages of life, those transformational moments happen much more quickly. I've been watching how much our newest grandson, Levi, has changed in just three months. A, a newborn is so helpless. Uh, in the first few days uh, after birth, they oftentimes lose their birth hair. Uh, sometimes they lose part of their birth weight. Uh, Levi weighed in at seven pounds, seven ounces, but within a few days, he'd lost a little bit more than 10% of his birth weight. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> in, in a matter of days, lose 10% of your weight. Boy, that, that would be terrific. But in a matter of 12 weeks, he has more than doubled his weight. That wouldn't be so nice. He is changing daily. Every time I see him, he's changed again. His dull newborn eyes are now focused, and they've taken on their brighter bluish color. He is developing personality. He is sleeping more consistently. He coos and he laughs. He has a morning paper out delivering the Herald Times. <laughs> Babies are all about transformation, and it happens quickly. When Paul writes to the infant church in Rome, he's all about transformation. It is not easy reading the book of Romans. He moves from baby food to meat and potatoes within the first couple of verses of chapter 1. And the first 11 chapters focus on the many facets of sin and grace and faith. It's deeply theological. As a matter of fact, Paul would have loved the song that Virginia just sang because he could say as well, that's exactly what he's trying to say in the book of Romans. Were it not for grace, we would have nothing. The power of sin would be too great. But in chapter 12, it begins with the word therefore, and Paul shifts into more of a practical application of everything he's written up to this point in time. This then is how transformation happens. It begins by becoming a living sacrifice, and it moves on to becoming a loving servant. That's transformation. Romans 12 is the Christian's transformational lifeline. And, and I want to I just take a few moments this morning and, and key in on about three different transformations that Paul talks about here in, in this chapter. And the first was simply this. There's this upward transformation, this challenge of spiritual change and transformation. Everyone experiences transformation, but without spiritual transformation, everything else seems to just be ultimately of no value. There may be some good transformations to take place in life, but if you don't get it spiritually, if Christ isn't transforming your heart, mind, and soul, there, there is something missing. You're not living up to what you were designed to be. In the late 1940s, the U.S. government commissioned um, William Francis Gibbs to work with the United States line in developing a troop transport that could carry up to 15 million, uh, excuse me, it would cost about $80 million, but it was designed to carry up to 15,000 troops uh, to uh, a war zone uh, during times of conflict. 
Now, it wasn't completed until 1952, but when it was completed, the SS United States could travel about 44 knots, that's about 51 miles per hour. She could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any other ship and travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. She had no peers. The SS United States was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world. Here's the catch. She never carried any troops. The ship was put on standby once in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but other than that moment on standby, she never lived up to her capacity, this grand purpose for which she'd been designed. Instead, the SS United States became a luxury liner for presidents and heads of states and a variety of other celebrities who traveled on her during her 17 years of service. As a luxury liner, she forfeited her noble troop-carrying capacity to pamper just a handful of people. 2,000 became her max. These passengers enjoyed the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four beautifully decorated dining rooms, two theaters, five acres of open deck with heated pools, 19 elevators, and the comfort of being the world's first all-fully air-conditioned ship. Instead of being a battle-ready vessel designed to help achieve victory, the SS United States became a ship of indulgence. We are in a battle for our very souls. Paul makes it abundantly clear in the opening chapters of Romans that our enemy, the destructive power of sin, is overwhelming if we're fighting that battle alone. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the grace of God is greater than the power of sin and its power of destruction. And like the SS United States, we've been designed and created for victory in this battle, not for self-indulgence. God's grace is not some license, it's not some permission to continue sinning. This is not a magical get-out-of-jail-free card that allows us to live life with total spiritual abandon right up to the last second or to the last breath and then drop the card at heaven's gates. The grace of God, were it not for grace, we would have no hope. The grace of God is transformational. It is to change our behavior. And if our behavior isn't changed in knowing Jesus Christ, then somehow we've missed this spiritual transformation. And that's why Paul writes in the opening verses of chapter 12 these words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, there's that upward look, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. Our response to God's mercy is stated as this, your spiritual act of worship. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a bit confusing for our 21st century minds. When I hear the word spiritual, I think of anything but the physical. I think of that which is 
sort of mystical inside, you know, the spirit, the soul. When I hear the word worship, I know better. But when I hear the word worship, and I suspect you do the same thing, I think of what we're doing right now. My mind immediately goes to Sunday morning in the worship center for about an hour, and then we leave worship and we go back into the world. Now, we know that's not true. We know that's not the whole story, that worship involves all of our life. But when I hear the word worship, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. And so when we think of what Paul's writing, he said, this is my spiritual act of worship, we get this concept, okay, spiritual transformation happens here. That, that's not what Paul is talking about if we limit it to these moments. The word translated worship is more about what we do or how we serve as an expression of worship outside these walls. And the word spiritual here is more often translated elsewhere in the scriptures as reasonable or logical. So, I believe we might understand this better if we would read it like this. In light of what God, in his mercy, has done for us, the only logical and reasonable response is to devote ourselves to serving him. Now that makes it a little bit more clear that it doesn't happen in here. It just starts in here and happens out there. He goes on to say, you know, you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And the word offer here is a really interesting word to me. It, it, it's a word that you would use uh, to reserve a table at a restaurant. Now, we Americans have a little bit different view of a, a reserved table at a restaurant than, than folks in, in Europe. Uh, I, I learned that differently when I would be able to teach uh, for TCM in Europe. Things are different over there. Now, when we reserve a table here, you go in, you eat your meal, the meal is over, they bring you the bill, you pay the bill, and you get up and leave the table. Why? Because there are other people in the waiting room that need that table, and the server needs the tips that come from those, and the restaurant needs the table. And so you go in, it's just kind of like this conveyor belt. You go in, and you go out, and you go in, and you go out. That's not what this word means, and that's not how it is done in most European restaurants. If you're in Europe and you reserve a table, it's yours for the whole night. Nobody's going to ask you to get up and leave, and so families and friends will gather sometimes at a restaurant, and they will eat together, and they may spend the whole evening there, and they, they talk, and they visit, and they build relationships, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He said, you are reserving your life for Jesus Christ. In other words, it's his totally. You are offering it to him, and nobody else gets a chance to sit at that table with you and with him. Offer your body. And why does it say bodies? Why does it say offer your spirits, offer your minds? It's because, folks, you cannot separate the spiritual from the physical. You, we, we are one in, in total. Uh, yes, I've got a mind. Uh, yes, I've got a soul. Uh, yes, I've got a will. Yes, I have emotions. Yes, I have a body. But you cannot separate them out. Where my body goes, the rest of that goes. Where my mind goes, my body goes. So when Paul says, present your bodies, he's saying that your spiritual relationship with God is also your physical actions and deeds. Your behavior matters. Don't you remember what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth? He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price Therefore, therefore, honor God with your body. You can't just say, well, spiritually, I'm okay, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, this, this body thing, that doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, your body really matters. Your mind, your will, your emotions, all of that is, is what God is working to reshape. 
You, you are and I am a moldable lump of clay. And whether the world's stamp is on you or whether God's stamp is on you is up to you. We were created in God's image, but God doesn't hold us to that. So you've got to choose. Are you going to wear the mold of the world? Tim talked a little bit about that. Are you going to conform to the world? Are you going to conform and be transformed by God into his image and bear his stamp? All of creation is unique. All of creation at the same time bears the stamp of the creator himself. Now, <clears throat> a few times this summer, about three or four times, we've made homemade ice cream. I like to make homemade ice cream. And you know that the secret of homemade ice cream is putting the ice around, or the salt in with the ice, which melts the ice, but it keeps the water at a temperature that is below freezing, which is why the ice cream freezes in the, in the container in the first place. The waters around the Antarctic continent are that way. It's salt water, but it is below freezing in temperature. So you'd think there could be absolutely no life that would live there, except for the Antarctic ice fish. Are you familiar with this? The ice fish thrives in that. And the reason being is in the, in the ice fish's blood system is, some, is a protein that acts like antifreeze in our cars. When the ice fish's blood begins to freeze, the little tiny water crystals, the ice crystals, are attacked by the protein, which breaks them up and keeps the blood flowing. The other thing is that we have red blood cells that help carry the oxygen and hemoglobin in our blood, which makes our blood thicker. The colder it gets, the thicker it gets. <laughs> ice fish doesn't have red blood cells, and it doesn't have hemoglobin, so it just keeps flowing freely. And in the oxygen-rich waters of the Antarctic, the plasma itself just picks up the oxygen, takes it everywhere it needs to go, and the ice fish is as happy as it can be in an environment that I wouldn't want or like. You see, the stamp of the Creator is upon the ice fish. Now, if God can enable the ice fish to live in such a, a foreign environment and succeed, don't you think God can enable your transformation to take place in this tough environment in which we live? The, the, the difference is this. The ice fish has no choice. You do. You can bear the image of the creator or you can be conformed to the world. Your choice. Which transformation will you take? Here's, here's the second thing. There's also an outward transformation. This is, this is our relational one, as we deal with, with, uh, with others relationally. Uh, Romans uh, 12, 3 and following says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In other words, we work together uh, equally. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, well, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. In other words, all of these different gifts come together as one in the body to make the body operate as one unit. But it begins with the phrase, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. We're all on the same playing field when we are in the body of Christ. <clears throat> we have a moral obligation to be a team player. It's not what I want, 
It's not what you want. It's what God wants in his body that matters most. I think our problem is that, can I, can I say it, that most of us think a little higher of ourselves than maybe we ought, that we, we, we just kind of have an exalted view of who we are. The, the SAT tests do not track just questions about math and English and science. They throw some other questions in there as well. And, and recently, the SAT tests uh, were compiled uh, after an exam of high school students getting ready for college. And these are some of the results that I thought were kind of interesting. 75% of the students rated themselves as above average in leadership. 70% above average in leadership. Only 2% as below average in leadership. When they rated themselves as how easy they were to get along with other people, 25% said they were in the top 1% of easy people to get along with others. 60% said that they were in the top 10% of easy to get along with people. And absolutely no one said that he was below average in being easy to get along with. What happened to these people between the SAT and adulthood is what I want to know. Because I'm telling you, we don't have 70% leadership out there, and we don't have all these people that are just incredibly easy to get along with. Could it be that when we look at ourselves, we, we just we have a little bit of an exalted view of who we are. We think a little bit more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Paul makes it clear that everything Jesus died for will come to nothing if we don't work together, if we don't bring ourselves down to work together on an equal plane, like a well-oiled machine, or like Paul says, like a harmonious body. I'm convinced that none of us really want to be exalted. I'm, I'm convinced that none of us really want to go through this life all by ourselves. I think we need the relationships. After all, we were created in the image of a relational God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are relational people, and God calls us into his body to be relational with one another, to get the work done. Now, there's a lot more to be said about that, but I'm going to say it this morning. I'm going to say it in September, but I do want you to take your calendars and mark September the 21st. That's the day when, when we're going to have a group link, which is your way and your opportunity to, to find out more about our life groups here at church and, and find a way to connect with other people that will help enhance your life, that will build relationships with you, that will work and serve together as a group. Because if this is all you do, you're not going to build relationships. You've got to be in smaller kind of settings to grow best and, and thrive best. But we'll talk more about that in September. Here's the third thing, last thing, and that is that there is an inward transformation. And, and, and it's simply this personal transformation that I feel has to happen inwardly before it can make a difference outwardly in this world. Not so much from a relational standpoint as now a service standpoint. I'm always amazed at how oblivious sometimes we all are. When we say we like to help people, sometimes how oblivious we are to the needs and the concerns of others. John Carlson relates an experience with a lousy restaurant meal and a somewhat disconnected waitress. Uh, after serving his meal and coming back to check on him, ask him if everything was okay, to which he said no. He said, the chicken is so tough you can't cut it with a knife. And she said, oh, I am so sorry. Let me get you a different knife. Do you, do you think she missed the point here just a little bit? A little bit oblivious to the real need at hand. Sometimes we look at life and we don't see what people really need. Helping others begins with 
helping ourselves, an inward transformation that begins with our devotion to being a living sacrifice before God. Now, God knows your heart. God knows your mind. God knows what's going on in your life, but I don't. (laughs) And you don't know what's going on in my life. The only way, you don't know what my motives are. I don't know what your motives are. The only way I can halfway guess what you really believe or feel or think or what's important to you is by watching your actions. That's, That's my only clue to you. That's your only clue to me. I think that's why Jesus had so much to say about doing in his preaching and teaching. His messages contained dozens of action words. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Help the needy. And so on. That's why Jesus was so harsh with the hypocrites. The people who said they were one thing but acted another way. You see, to claim one thing and to live something else is the greatest insult to our faith and the greatest insult to the grace of God. Nothing, nothing is so damaging to the earnest seeker of the truth than to be misled and deceived by one who does not practice in action what he says he believes in his words. No one likes a hypocrite. You know how it goes. Oh, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites that are there. I've heard that all of my ministry life. Hey, we shop at Walmart with other hypocrites. We attend ball games with other hypocrites. We eat in restaurants with people at the other table right next to us who are hypocrites. Isn't it hypocritical to say you won't go to church because of the hypocrites, but you'll do everything else with the hypocrites out there? I mean, come on, don't use that. Don't use that as an excuse. Zig Ziglar once invited a friend to go to church with him. The man answered, well, I'd like to go with you, but the church is so full of hypocrites. And Zig said, that's okay, there's always room for one more. (laughs) It's true, it's true. There there are hypocrites in the church. And, And to a certain degree, we're all hypocritical. I get that, we're human beings. We're flawed, broken human beings. Every one of us is hypocritical to a certain degree. But don't use that as an excuse not to build a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ. More importantly, more importantly, don't be the person that somebody else can use as the excuse to avoid Jesus Christ. Paul says this inner transformation must take place so that you can genuinely serve others. And that's how he writes uh, this last section. And, and, and verse 9 begins with, love must be sincere. I believe that's kind of an overarching theme of the whole thing. But you say, well, how, what's sincere love look like? And well, Paul goes on to describe it. And this is what we read. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor seeking the Lord. And this is Brooke's favorite verse, remember, from the video. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now mark that uh, in your Bible, put that under favorites on your cell phone or your tablet, and refer back to it often because this is how a living sacrifice lives. We won't understand what it means to honor others until we get it straight in our own life. And what I see in this passage, I don't have to stand up here and explain what these things mean. You under, this is easy to understand, it's just not easy to do. It doesn't need explanation, it needs application. But this is how a living sacrifice lives. You and I need to study it often. When Bill Hybels was about to launch Willow Creek Community Church up in the Chicago area, the, the, the mega church that runs thousands and thousands every weekend now, he sought out a lawyer to help with the necessary legal forms that were required in the new venture. And when Bill went in, as I understand it, to sign the paperwork after they were all drawn up, the uh, older attorney asked him, and Bill was 22 at the time, he says, why are you starting this church? And Bill Hybels replied, he said, to change people's lives. The veteran attorney placed his hand on his shoulder and, uh, and started into <laughs> some comments that Bill said sort of sounded like a closing arguments of, to a jury, he said, young man, if there's one thing I've learned in 30 years of practicing law, it's that people's lives never change. Greedy people stay greedy. Hateful people stay hateful. Arrogant people stay arrogant. And cheaters keep on cheating. Remember this, young man. People don't change. Bill Hybels responded, well, sir, I'm betting my whole life on you being wrong about that. Folks, the Lord's church is a living testimony to the fact that people can change, not on their own, but with the transformational grace of Jesus Christ working in us, we can change. I don't care how bad the past has been, you can stop today and you can begin your change with Jesus Christ. Change happens. You can become a living sacrifice. You will be transformed by him. But remember, this transformational work is for the rest of your life. You never reach a point where you can say, up, oh, I'm done, I've arrived, I'm finished, no more transformation. <laughs> Ruth Graham, wife of Billy Graham when she died, understood that principle. She had the following words carved on her tombstone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. I like that. What a testimony to the life that we live in Christ, constantly under his construction, transformational lifeline.